0: If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress
1: slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and this is our first show for June of 2019. Uh, Drew, you are just back from uh, the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland Park, which uh, you were telling me that you were kind of surprised at how big a component the Star Wars-related animation is to the land?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was was surprising. I mean, first of all, I want to say that we missed you in Galaxy's Edge, Jim. Black Spire Outpost just is not the same without without you there
1: job and i have this deal yes it can only be two fat slug like creatures in one place at any one time (laughs) but
0: but i saw dan z there so that was that was nice i didn't get to see len but i saw i saw dan z Mm -hmm. so okay he's following all the um applications of his parole and so he's doing well so (laughs) this is true this
1: is true yeah so but
0: yeah i was i was shocked to see how much of the animated stuff is is a component of this um this land mm. obviously there's the hondo figure in the millennium falcon queue mm-hmm. there's actually dialogue from other characters from resistance in the line for <laughs> the millennium falcon i don't know if anybody had told you that or you'd heard no,
1: that really? uh,
0: audio yeah mm. there is a loth, a uh, sleeping loth cat in um yeah. you know that's so cute
1: Alice was just showing me the video for one of those and don't they sell a Cat plush or a Cat puppet or something like that or they do.
0: They they sell a plush that I think purrs when you touch it. It's really interesting to see the animation sort of come to life in this way and become really an integrated part of the Star Wars universe. It's just it's a hoot, mm-hmm. let me just say that. Um and I think you're gonna love it whenever you get to the Black Spire outpost of Batuu.
1: The official opening was on what, May thirty first? Disney's uh, live-action Aladdin did a a pretty respectable uh, $42 in its second weekend, uh, coming in second to Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which you, again, liked, right? I
0: I liked it, yeah. Did you go see
1: it? Alice and I are going tomorrow. Okay. uh, We will check in at that point. uh,
0: But did you see Aladdin?
1: Not yet. Speaking of Aladdin, though, on the second half of today's show, Drew and I are going to go are going to be talking about Speechless, which is that song that Alan Menken, uh, Benji Paskin, uh, Justin Paul wrote for Jasmine and for the Guy Ritchie live-action version, which is a very powerful number, especially in this era of Me Too. But what's kind of interesting is this was the fourth try by Menken to come up with a, a Disney Princess song. And I know that, you know, from that, that interview we ran in last week's show, It's taken 30 years of trying to get the right song.
0: And he finally did it.
1: Okay, what else we got for news? We got Toy Story 4, box office projections. We're, what, three weeks out now from the Josh Cooley movie opening. And according to the folks at Fandango and Adam Tickets, Vance Tales uh, sales for Toy Story 4, already outpacing Finding Dory and last year's Incredible Stew. I guess the folks at Disney are saying... The early tracking suggests somewhere landing between 100 million and 150 million, which seems a little vague to me, Drew. <laughs> it's, a, it's a
0: widespread there, yeah.
1: Could be, you know, the, the target we're looking for could be Europe, could be Asia. I, I you right. know, I don't want to zero in at this point. I have to wonder, though, given that the early tracking for Aladdin suggested what 65 to 85 for its first week in domestic release and. Then it came in at 113 million. Do you think that they, Disney has begun deliberately lowballing?
0: I mean, they could. I, I don't think. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting that they're saying that it's going to outpace Incredibles too. Mm-hmm. That just seemed like such a phenomenon. Well, yeah, uh, last and, year. And,
1: and that did what? 182 million dollars in tickets sold for its opening weekend. When I hear a hundred, especially now on the heels of sixty-five to eighty-five, and you know, and then to have Aladdin sell one hundred thirteen million worth of tickets during its opening weekend, I can't help but think that maybe the tracking that Disney currently has in hand suggests that maybe Toy Story Four isn't going to top Incredibles Two. Maybe it's going to do in the mid, you know, one seventies. But the way to keep that from being spun as being a disappointment is if you announce a far lower figure and then it exceeds. like, okay, hey, oh my God, it it overperformed. It over-performed. There we yeah. go. There we go. So I guess we'll know in a couple of weeks. But
0: yeah, I'll be at the premiere next Tuesday.
1: Oh, so uh, yeah, the at the L cap again or at the
0: L cap. Yes, I'll, I will be. I will be in attendance. It's interesting to note that there is no short film attached to Toy Story Four which is kind of interesting and also did you see the run time is only an hour and 40 minutes Are as you... opposed to the uh two hours ish of i think it incredibles 2 might have even been over two hours but anyway wow. it's a, yeah so kind of some interesting things to think about going into into toy story 4
1: hmm. but okay you gotta wonder if, if some of this is their way of apologizing to exhibitors for the three hour and two minute run for endgame
0: right <laughs> You're in, you're out. You get your. There you get go. Your Cram, fee. in yeah. there.
1: And while we're talking about Pixar, the the onward teaser trailer dropped, and I loved a lot of what I saw for the for this teaser. I mean, how can you not love a movie that features unicorns basically as feral raccoons? <laughs> but I, if if I have one quibble, one tiny little quibble. The characters that Tom Holland and Chris Pratt are voicing for the Dan Scanlon movie, did they have to look so much like Tom Holland and Chris Pratt? I mean, but at the same time, uh, there was a lot to like. I mean, it it looks fun.
0: Yeah, the world looks amazing. I mean, I love that opening shot of all the the magical creatures and then a a plane just Mm -hmm. flying through. It's Mm -hmm. so... It's so funny and it looks beautiful, I think. I can't wait to uh to see more of it.
1: I love the tag gag of cometh soon. Right. That generally right. looks like a lot of fun though. Conversely though, I, I don't know if you saw the the Sonic trailer that had been redone by Arto Barnoff. He went back into the, the trailer that Paramount had created for the Jeff Fowler movie and and reanimated this just the scenes with Sonic. So it looked more like the cartoon. Right. You know, in a weird sort of way, it actually made me feel that much more sympathetic for Jeff Fowler because there, there were a couple of scenes in it where it really looked great. I mean, you know, the cartoon Sonic really looked great in, in the way the shots were composed. And then there were other ones where it's like, yay. I think the poor guys who were now trying to get this thing out the door and fixed by February. Man, they got a job on their hands there.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's a bad situation in any way you, mm. you slice it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I talked about how I, I had spoken with one of the effects guys from Pikachu, and mm. they said it was probably a matter of time, and mm-hmm. they just didn't have enough time. And, and now they're getting slightly more time, but it might not be enough time. I don't know. The whole thing is just a bad a bad scene. Yeah, I don't know what what the answer is, but I don't envy anybody involved in that movie.
1: And speaking of characters that don't quite look right, Mickey's <laughs> PhilharMagic is has begun being shown at Disney's California Adventure. Uh it, it's yes. this is supposed to induce people who can't get into Black Spire Outpost said, well, don't worry about it. You can go over to DCA and you you can see Mickey's Filler Magic or you can see the original version of Soaring. There's fun stuff to be had over there. Don't, don't concentrate on that. You can't get into the Star Wars land. Right. <laughs> now, you were saying that for California, they're projecting it digitally, right?
0: They're projecting it digitally, but it is cropped. It's not the same size screen oh. as in Florida. Oh. Yeah, so it's actually a little... The image is a little bit cropped, which kind of is bad. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, they're introducing the digital version in Florida Mm -hmm. soon. But is this just like kind of like slapping lipstick on a pig? If that animation was never really good.
1: But here's the thing that makes me crazy, Drew. Okay, so this movie debuts at a Disney theme park in 2003. By 2006, there was Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. I know it's television and animation, but at least they figured out how to do Mickey, how to do the ears. So we are now 15, 16 years past the initial debut of this thing. And so the fix is still that Mickey is out of focus, you know, so you don't concentrate <laughs> on how bad the ears look. And out of focus in digital, you know, sharply out of focus. Ugh. Right. For years yeah. now, I've been hearing that they were talking about swapping in new scenes, whether songs from Tangled, songs from Frozen. Can't they fix Mickey while they're at it?
0: It just seems weird. I don't know why they're bringing this old thing back, too. I mean, I would rather see Muppets back there, but that's just me. That's that, We'll save that for our Muppet podcast, Feel and Felt. That'll be our. It, next... It's
1: interesting you bring up of the Muppets. Have you seen where Fathom is bringing the original Muppet movie? Out in theaters? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go. I actually got to see a very, very, very early cut of the movie back when I was managing a, a movie theater in Acton, Massachusetts. You used to be able to go into Boston to the film exchange. They gave you like three or four months out the chance to take a look, look at a movie and then decide if your movie theater was going to bid on whether or not you could get the Muppets. And there was a scene they actually cut out of the movie... You remember midway through where they run into Doctor Teeth and uh, the Electric Mayhem? Of course. Okay. Well, this, this moment where they start to t- you know explain to Doctor Teeth and you know about what's going on for the first half hour of the movie, and and Fozzie goes, "Wait, wait, wait! It will be so much easier." And he hands him the script of the movie. The, and the Dr. Keith and Dr. Graham stand around the screenplay and they do like this 30 second montage of, okay, so you fork in the road and, you know, the Doc Hopper. And it's like, okay, we're up to speed. And then they go, <laughs> I, I guess it was one of those jokes where it played really well in the screening room in Boston. But I, from what I heard that when they put it out in theaters, it was it kind of took people out of the movie. I love that. There's a part of me that really, really wants to go see that again. But at the same time, I... I wonder, is it going to hold up?
0: Yeah, I wonder that too. But it'll just be fun. I mean, I went and did the Fathom event uh, this past Christmas, mm-hmm. where they showed a Christmas episode of Fraggle Rock and uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas oh, on the wow. big screen, which was really cool because that's one of my favorites. So I'm I'm excited.
1: A quick side note here, the but it does. Given that all the time you spent living in Connecticut, did you ever get down get to the Goodspeed Theater when they were no. doing the stage version of Emmett Otter? I remember when
0: they did it, but I never saw it. Mm-hmm. Did you see it?
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I got to interview Paul Williams while they, they brought him in to do some new songs for the score. And
0: Oh, God, I love Paul Williams. Yeah,
1: no, he's a, a, an amazing guy. Did you ever see that documentary, by the way, that Paul Williams is still alive?
0: Yes, I got to interview him for that. <sighs> and I was wearing my, my Brian De Palma t-shirt and had him sign my... It was not out on DVD in America yet, but I had a a French Blu-ray of Phantom of the Paradise that I made him sign. He was delighted.
1: Oh, that is so... No, he is such a great interview and such a sweet guy. Back to news runoff here. Did you see this announcement of the Mark Webb-directed live-action Snow White? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. He is not a great director. Mm-hmm. i'm I'm just gonna put it out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Spider-Man movies were terrible. Mm-hmm. Five hundred days of summer is fine, mm-hmm. but he's never done anything that I mean, I cannot believe that this is the guy they're trusting with the crown jewel of Disney Animation. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially because there were so many other interesting versions that they had developed along the way. Well,
1: no, it, it's interesting you you bring it up because rem- remember that there was what Snow Star. That was the one. In fact, I, I remember Ron Miller talking about this. This was going to be the follow-up to originally to Black Hole. It w- was going to be basically Snow White and the Seven Droids, um, right. you know, taking the story and setting it in, in a you know a sci-fi setting. And then you were talking about. Who was it that wrote the screenplay for the Snow and the Seven or the Order? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, I think Michael Arndt did one draft mm-hmm. who, did, who wrote Toy Story 3 and mm-hmm. worked on Force Awakens. But I remember that Michael Chabon, mm-hmm. who is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, mm-hmm. had a screenwriting credit at one point on that, which was supposed to be like the sort of Shaolin yeah, that the, Kung Fu version. Yeah, right?
1: that's that's it exactly the gimmick was it was set in what 1890s? china uh was in English school a, a mistress i, I want to say who ran afoul of a warlord and took off into the jungle and ended up in the care of uh, seven shaolin monks and at one point the guy who did all of the the kung fu sequences for crouching tiger hidden dragon was attached as the, the director and I,
0: I mean it oh yeah Wu ping right yeah and it
1: was just one of these things from the outside it just seemed so intriguing and i guess for me when you had those ideas on the table, why circle back to doing the movie you already made?
0: Yeah, I, I don't get it. And, w- you know, we were talking about the dwarfs project oh, um, yeah. on another show yeah. with the, with Dopey looking like Conan the Barbarian um, <laughs> and all that, which sounds great.
1: There's a wonderful story that was done over in an Animated Views about this, or Mike Dissa, uh, uh, who, who was at Disney Tunes, working on this thing. This was, this was supposed to be the... Appeal to boys project that would be sort of alternate between Disney fairies. That they're talking 2005 when this was in the works, so I'm thinking it had to predate the Disney plane series. But they had initially sussed this thing out as a trilogy, there were so many great ideas. But what made Mike decide I'm not going forward with this project is evidently he had this meeting with a Disney executive who decided that there had to be a reason that Dopey lost his voice. The original 1937 Walt Disney explanation that he can talk, he just doesn't want to. But no, in the classic, now the the cliché Disney version, evidently what made Dopey mute is that he saw his mother killed in front of him. Oh, (laughs) jeez. So There was a trauma, and so that's why he can't talk. Wow. Yeah. Let's be fair. All right. Mark Webb is directing. at the same time, we got Mark Platt, uh, Mark Platt, excuse me, producer of Mary Poppins Returns. He's also doing Corolla and Rob Marshall's Little Mermaid. So it sounds like there'll be top people working behind Mark. And in fact, right. the guys who actually just worked with Ellen Mencken on the new songs for Aladdin, the uh, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, they're going to be doing some new songs. I don't know about this one, I, I, especially on the heels of what just happened with Tim Burton's Dumbo. I mean, I know the original live-action remake that sort of started all this stuff, Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, did well back in 2015, but... I just wonder if this is going back to the well once too often here. or uh, The witching well, hey! The
0: witching... <laughs> well, you know that you, I, I just got invited to a press day for the Dumbo Home Video Day mm-hmm. that's happening next week. Oh. That tells you how quickly that is going to be Wow, <laughs> coming out. Yeah.
1: Okay. okay. So,
0: yeah.
1: All right. While we're talking about animated features and that sort of thing... Press release came out while we were away announcing that Tom McGrath, who's done a lot of work for, for DreamWorks Animation, in fact, this was trumpeting the fact that with him agreeing to direct Boss Baby 2, this is now his sixth film for DreamWorks Animation, which made me think, well, who else has directed six movies? And it turns out one of the only people who's done this was Woolly Reitherman. Well, sort of. That's with caveats. That's an important thing to point out, because if you go back to Tom McGrath's career feature at DreamWorks, yes, he's directed six films, but he's only solo directed three, uh, Megamind, Boss Baby, and again, this Boss Baby 2, whereas the three Madagascar movies, two of those he co-directed with Eric Darnell, and then the Madagascar 3, Europe Most Wanted, he actually co-directed with Eric Darnell and Conrad Vernon. Now, and you're right about Wooly. Uh, Wooly was listed as the solo director of One Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book, Aristocats, and Robin Hood. By the time The Rescuers rolled around, he had co-directors. He worked with John Lansbury, Lansbury, excuse me, and Art Stevens. And then he was the director of record, at least initially on Fox and the Hound, and then got taken off of that.
0: Yeah, he was kind of pushed off, from what I understand, for being too old-fashioned, but Mm -hmm. not that that movie ended up being a cutting-edge tour de force or anything. Yeah,
1: this is true. And then on the Pixar side of the fence, John Lasseter actually is listed as the solo director on five films for that studio. The original Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2, then Cars and Cars 2, and... Different universe. He would have been probably. This is the co-director on Toy Story three.
0: But all those hugs just got in the way of John. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, you're making friends left and right. Huh? <laughs> um, okay. Oddly enough, the most prolific directors in in the modern era of animation, but it's a directing team. Have to be Ron Clements and John Musker from their first, uh, The Great Mouse take in '85 they wound up directing seven films for disney but uh, the last one of course don hall and chris williams are listed as co-directors given what a collaborative process is and i think you know you mentioned this as, as we get started here that nobody does one of these films alone what animation directing really is is being the one who sits there in the room when you're picking the boards and it's like, all right that one that that one that that one I wish Tom well, because right now he's the only director of Boss Baby Two. Who knows when that movie finally comes out in two thousand twenty one, you know, whether he's still gonna be a solo credit on that.
0: Right. Listen, I know you're I know you're chomping at the bit for Boss Baby Two, so I hope, you know.
1: The other night I caught like the last twenty minutes of it. Never seen the film all the way through and it really had some fun design. How is it as a movie?
0: It's okay. It's it, the premise is is pretty threadbare, which is shocking. I think there's already a TV show and that the fact that they're making another movie, but it made a lot of money, so there God you go. bless them. You know.
1: well, well, speaking of TV shows, sadly, this month we're going to see if if the rumors are true, the the sixth and final season of The Amazing Adventures of Gumball. The last episode is supposed to air on June 24th. It's a, uh, again, two show. It's one of those shows that there's two 11 minute long segments. So, The BFFs and The Inquisitions, and 240 episodes of this thing since it began airing. One
0: of the most underrated shows, I think, in, in, in animation.
1: I totally agree. I, I love the mix of elements, the clever writing, the overall look. And I really am almost embarrassed. To admit how much I empathize with Richard, the father. The rabbit. Yeah, I feel like he's my yeah. spirit animal. <laughs> you know, <it's> just... <laughs> So it does make me sad. Though, uh, now you were mentioning the series finale, first star in the Force versus the Force of Evil.
0: Yeah, it was really touching. It was well done. I think that the show got a little lost in the latter seasons just with how much fantasy Mm -hmm. stuff was a part of it. It's just, it got, got very complicated, Mm -hmm. but I thought this had a nice, sweet kind of emotional ending. And I think you should watch it on DVR or whatever. Yeah,
1: definitely. You know, when we wrap up here, I'll go chase that down. And while we're talking about uh, television news, you know, we have one cartoon network show ending. We have another one. Jeez. We bear bears is, They're getting a TV movie. They're getting a spin-off. Can't wait.
0: Wait, what is this? What is the spin-off about?
1: Well, uh, evidently, it's Grizz, Panda, and Ice Bear as little kids. They've done a a couple of episodes that show them as younger characters.
0: Those are even cuter than the main episodes, Mm. so I can only imagine.
1: (laughs) Well, while we're talking about children of a different nature, Aaron Magruder's Boondocks, uh, which was a comic strip that I loved, and then became a really biting, incredibly funny, but polarizing animated series on Adult Swim. And God, talk about a protracted production schedule. What? That thing debuted in November of 2005. And by the time it wrapped its fourth season, it was 2014. So, you know, not exactly the pumping them out there, but there, there were 55 episodes, all beautifully written, all. Fighting as hell, and and really really funny, and that was it until just recently, where, where John Witherspoon, the, the 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 voice actor who did Granddad on the show, was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, and he revealed he's he's been recording dialogue for new episodes.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, I wonder if they're actually going to be episodes or if they're going to be pod, you know, something online or or what the deal is going to be.
1: Magruder actually, he shut down the strip, but just this past year, revived it in February, albeit briefly, uh, to go after Trump and I forget who else he went after, but there's been no word out of Adult Swim. This thing is totally uh, running under the radar. So I'm really, really hoping that this happens. But I guess you're right. It's hard to predict where it's going to show up, whether it's streaming content or that sort of thing. But he, he seemed to suggest this was for Adult Swim.
0: I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready for it. Well, we got a new we got a new Gendy show coming on Adult Swim and and that I'm, I'm so ready for it.
1: Well, speaking of ready, Drew and I are ready to take our break. But when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the songs Jasmine had for the various forms of the Aladdin movies and the, the stage shows and all that and we're also going to talk about those lion king posters that shut up just oh yes <laughs> so all right back in a sec folks try to be positive here drew because just before you and i started recording today we had that new teaser tra- trailer drop for john favreau's the lion king i did we get to see Beyonce's version of Nala in action. I actually thought it looked pretty good.
0: Yeah, I, li- I like seeing Timon and, T- and Pumbaa mm. talking. Yep,
1: yep. Just today, the novelization of the Lion King showed up here at the house, and I had to see what they had for Timon and, and Pumbaa dialogue, and, and how it changed from Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella and there's a moment where they come across, you know, there's the moment for the bowling for buzzards thing. And in the book, they describe how Timon and Pupa come up, and it's like, oh, look, it's a ball of fur, you know. And Timon is, immediately, it's like, I'm a naked meerkat. The Knights of Chile, that fur is mine. (laughs) So it's, in fact, they talk about, you know, how... You know, should they raise him? Should they save him? And it's not always going to grow into be, you know, a 500-pound killing machine that we're going to have to call, don't eat me! So I'm hopeful. But on the other hand, the 11 posters they put out?
0: Yeah. Those were a miscalculation, I think. Um, because they look so real. I, it looks like a, a Disney nature mm-hmm. poster. I mean, those might as well be the, you know, the next Disney nature movie. There's no... Personality to any of them. It, it's really weird and, and kind of eerie, I think.
1: I was actually looking at them and it was one of these things where when you're looking at full-grown Simba and realize that he's virtually indistinguishable from Mufasa and it's just a little, well, of course, dumbass. That's a story choice. And in the original movie, there's that moment where Scar as Simba comes back, you know, mistakes Simba from Mufasa. But yeah, mm-hmm. in poster form, it's just sort of like, This is definitely would have been a less is more situation. But given the 30 posters that Disney put out ahead of Avengers Endgame, is this a thing now? You know, you just, you wallpaper the characters out there and that's what they think gets people to go into a theater as opposed to a story?
0: That is a question for the marketing team. That is not that we can answer, but yeah, it's... It's not the best
1: approach, I don't think. Okay. Well, speaking of, of interesting ways that Disney markets movies, in, in the past week or so, we've seen them put out a big chunk of Speechless, which is Jasmine's song, uh, the, the new song that, that Alan Menken wrote for that film, again, with Benji Pasek uh, and Justin Paul, they the guys who did Evan Hansen for Broadway and also wrote the songs for... The Hugh Jackman movie for Fox, The Greatest Showman. You know, Naomi Scott does a wonderful job with this. It's a good, strong power ballad, and it's at a moment in the Aladdin story where there's never been a song before. I mean, it's like the third act.
0: Well, there's a little bit of a thing at the beginning, and then they bring it back more towards the third act. Yeah. You would know this, Jim, if you actually went and saw the movie. I so I just want to, you know. I'm a bad point that out.
1: person, we, but we've yes. established that. That's What's true interesting not. for me about this song, is that it's clearly of the time we're in. I mean, you know, that that if you think about where we are, our national conversation is, you know, Me Too, and that sort of thing, this is the song that works for this time for this story. But if you go all the way back to 1987, when Howard Ashman is putting together the very first 40-page treatment, he's there at Disney writing music with Alan Menken for The Little Mermaid. That whole notion of the ike and tina turner thing that he wanted to do at disney just that fascinated me so i went out digging online and i found the actual 40 page treatment somebody had found it scanned it put it up online and oh my god drew it's a funhouse mirror take on aladdin i mean there's so much stuff that's in the film from 1992 but at the same time there's so much that's a radical departure how Howard Ashman originally envisioned Jasmine. In that version, she's not a role model by any stretch of the imagination, Drew. He actually describes her in the sort of the character breakdown as this purely comic creation. She's the ultimate in pampered, spoiled brattiness. And the actresses he was sort of putting out there as kind of a suggestion of what they were tone-wise, you think Madeline Kahn or Bernadette Peters in a really bad mood? Right. But again, this was the version of Aladdin that was supposed to be like one of those road pictures that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope did for Paramount back in 1940. And it's very different film, very different setting. I mean, for example, not in Agrabah. But as Howard described it, it's set in Old Baghdad. Well, not Old Baghdad. This is a zany, fanciful Baghdad of the imagination. Somewhere between the fairy tale city of the classic the Arabian Nights illustrations and Pinocchio's Pleasure Island, a place that's alternately alluring and threatening, a place familiar from a lot of old movies and not just Arabian Night movies either. There's a hint of Humphrey Bogart's Casablanca and Marlene Dietrich's Morocco in this atmosphere, timeless but with a whiff of exotic 1930s and decor, music, and mood. Very, very, very different. From uh, the movie that we know today, with lots and lots of show business references, the original version of Aladdin, as he saw the character, wasn't the Tom Cruise lookalike, the kid who was up on the rooftop with a boo looking at the castle and, you know, someday things are going to change and we'll be rich and live in a palace and wish that people could see there's so much more to me, that sort of thing. And no, Howard went in a different way. This was Matthew Broderick and, F- and Ferris Bueller. Uh-huh. This version of the character, only 15 years old, charming but irresponsible. All that this version of Aladdin wanted to do was play in the village square, and I mean play as in play music, with his friends Babcock, Omar, and Kazim. This is a movie that doesn't have one genie. It has two, the Genie of the Lamp and the Genie of the Ring, and... The Genie of the Ring is actually in the Aladdin we know from 1992. The physical look of the character is the peddler. The character that Robin Williams does at the beginning, where he's he's Mesopotamian Tupperware guy. That's the second genie for the film, uh, the Genie of the Ring. Whereas, again, Jasmine in this version she was a spoiled brat you know one that bragged how she had daddy uh the sultan wrapped around her finger and ashman and menken wrote an introductory song for this version of, of jasmine as part of the movie and it was called call me a princess and it it's a deliberately comic number that gets across what a bad fit this version of jasmine would have been for aladdin the song has lyrics like uh, call me a princess i don't care call me obsessed with nails and hair Only concerned with what to wear, shallow, and blase. And uh, how about this, Drew, for a line that would never... I mean, remember how they cut out... uh, What was it? Will they cut out your ear if they don't like your face? Yes. That line from the film between when the movie was in theaters and when the the VHS initially came out. How would you think this line would play today? Soon I'll get married what could be sweeter to some Salim or Abdullah... Whoever he is, he the two things he'll need are earplugs and plenty of moolah. So, Ugh. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's what every little girl on the planet wants to hear. Yeah. But here's the thing. The reason that uh, Howard and Alan wrote this song that way is that in this version of the Aladdin story, Jasmine and Aladdin weren't supposed to get together. It was actually the girl next, literally the girl who lived next door to Aladdin and his mom. Her name was Abby. In this, this treatment, Ashman describes Abby as well a tomboy. A cute, tough little street urchin, completely at home, hanging out with the guys. And again, the guys are Babcock, Omar, Kazim, and Aladdin. And secretly suffering from a mad crush on Aladdin. And Howard also notes in the cert that his model for this character, how she would be portrayed and voiced and that sort of thing, was Judy Garland. OK, but again, the Judy Garland that was in all of the Andy Hardy movies that had mooned over Mickey Rooney while Mickey Rooney only had eyes for Lana Turner. And all right. Anyway, jump ahead to 91. They are, you know, 90 percent concentrating on Beauty and the Beast, you know, getting that out the door. But at the same time, they are working on Aladdin because that's going to be the film that follows Beast. And Katzenberg is just not happy with the way Aladdin is shaping up. It's got too many characters. It's more snarky than sincere. And the other thing you have to remember is Disney, right after Mermaid came out, got letters from a lot of parents. They were upset that Ariel, you know, at the first sign of this this handsome young man, that this Prince Eric, throws over her dad, King Triton, as well as her six sisters, Athena, Alana, Adela, Arista... Adriana and and, and Dopey. I I forget what the other one's called. Um, So that's what's kind of interesting is that if you you understand that, you know, they were getting those letters, so they tried to course correct with Beauty and the Beast. So think about what Belle does in Beauty and the Beast, that, you know, she comes to the Beast's castle, she finds her dad in the dungeon, and she immediately offers to to swap places with him because, you know, this is a character who values her family above all others and Disney thought okay we've addressed that issue that's going to be fine so like no now they get letters about Belle because it's like oh my god what sort of lesson are you teaching girls that here's a girl who you know she's bright she's rich she has you know she wants to have adventure in the great wide somewhere and without a second thought she agrees to be a slave forever to this beast and it's like oh crap all right and so that's why now they course correct from beauty and the beast that's why when you get to the animated aladdin and you have jasmine as this fierce character who well do you remember the scene just at the end of prince ali where the sultan and jafar and prince abubu are you know sort of like oh i'll charm her you know i'll I'll win her over and Jasmine sort of comes into the room and like, how dare you? How would all of you standing here deciding my future? I'm at a prize to be won. And so we're kind of in the, you know, the three little bears mode. You know, this one's too hot. This one's too cold. And hopefully right. this take on a female character is just right. So obviously with this version of Jasmine, uh, Call Me a Princess is just not going to work. But it's so late in the game. They don't really have an opportunity now to do a song. For Jasmine. And what ends up happening is that, you know, she basically gets half a song with A Whole New World. And Linda Larkin does the talking voice of the character and Leah Song does the singing voice. Okay, jump ahead, 2002. And Disney's California Adventure, which had opened in February of the previous year, is tanking. Nobody wants to go to it. So is an effort to get Southern Californians to come out to the park. They announced they're going to do a brand new show in the Hyperion Theater. They were literally throwing things against wall at the wall to see what would stick to try to get people to come into that theme park. So what they decide they're going to do a 40-minute version of Aladdin. And Mencken is like, oh, cool, because we never got the chance to do a song for Jasmine, and now here's my chance. So Alan actually writes this all by himself, He I, and which is kind of interesting because Chad Beglin... Uh, the guy, he'd eventually write the... Beglin actually wrote, wrote the lyrics for the Broadway version of Aladdin, but for this iteration of the project, the 40-minute theme park version, he only wrote the book. And Mencken, when he was looking for a song for Jasmine to sing, uh, uh, more to the point, looking for a moment for uh, where Jasmine would sing in the movie, or from the movie to do for the the theme park stage show, uh, hit upon that, that moment in, from the film where Jasmine releases the birds from the gilded cage mm-hmm. and writes the song to be free. And Mencken, if you look at what he does for stage shows, what he likes to do is circle back to the underscore that he's written for the movie. Cause that's the thing Mencken does. Is he not only writes the songs, but he also creates the underscore for a lot of the movies he works on. But what he'll do is he'll find a, a melody that was used in the underscore and then turned that into a full-blown song. I mean, for example, out of the animated version of Beauty and the Beast, there's that scene where Maurice climbs up on Philippe and Belle says goodbye to him as he heads off to the fair. There's a chunk of music under there that, for the Broadway show, they turned into the song no matter what. Right. Likewise, for The Little Mermaid, there's that music from the moment where Scuttle flies into the castle and, hey, congratulations, you know, you and Prince Eric are getting married. And that they turned into, uh, in fact, I believe that section of the, the film score is called Wedding Invitation. They turned that into a song for the second act called Beyond My Wildest Dreams. And I guess while we're talking about Alan Menken recycling, do, do we really want to bring up how somewhere that's green from Little Shop of Horror's Really, there's a lot of part of your world <laughs> <laughs> that you know. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, yeah,
1: yeah. Man, all right. Moving on. <laughs> anyway, to to be free. The, the the interesting thing is the music for that. You've heard the music from that. If you've seen the animated Aladdin, remember the scene where it's Aladdin and genie at the oasis, and at one point the genie actually gets Pinocchio's face. Yes, that's where he pulled the music. But it's this chunk of music that he's written these lines to, to the effect of pushing the whole bird in a gilded cage metaphor. It's you know freedom to stretch these golden wings, freedom to touch the sky, and how she you know, she talks about how she'd sacrifice riches beyond measure just to be a girl with a boy. What a perfect fantasy! And you get what's wrong with that, Drew? Right? That
0: yeah, does not does not work.
1: Yeah, does cause, not work because no. you know again it's a, it's a woman who can't be happy unless she has a man. Right. All right, now, jump ahead again. Uh, 2014, we've got the Broadway version of Aladdin being mounted. Again, as I mentioned, here's, here's Mencken writing lyrics with Chad Beglin. And the whole concept of the show was to try to take all of those songs that had been cut from the movie when Jeffrey Katzenberg said, lose the mom and cut this song and that sort of thing, and finally pull these songs out of the trunk and give people the flavor and the fun of of that original 40-page treatment. And Megan and Benjamin really wanted to bring back Call Me a Princess. And they thought they found a way to do it. In that when Jasmine stood on stage performing this number she wasn't really a spoiled brat. She was pretending to be a spoiled brat. And this was the way that she scared off would-be suitors that, you know, like, you know, I don't want to get married to that. But here's the problem, that this is how, this is literally the first time you see Jasmine in the first act of the stage show. And they tried the show in Seattle and Toronto with Courtney Reed. Okay. But the problem was that when they finished the song, you could actually feel the audience sort of pull back from Jasmine because it was like, well geez, she's a liar. You know, I mean she's pretending to be something she's not and it it took them a long time after that to warm up to the character again and Drew not to belabor the double standard here but given that <laughs> Aladdin almost from the moment he comes into the show and this the second act is lying, you know, he's he's Vince, Prince Ali Ababwa pretending to be somebody he's not and and we love him for that cuz he's this scrappy yeah. underdog so it, it's, it's one of these things where as they're coming into New York, they realize, geez, we need a new song for Jasmine. We want people to be in this character's corner. And so what they decide to do is, all right, where, where is she going? You know, well, you know, in the film, you know, Jasmine, you know, sneaks over the wall and goes out to check out, you know, what it's like to be, you know, a commoner in her father's kingdom. And it's like, well, let's write a song about that. about how she feels hemmed in? And this is where Beyond These Palace Walls comes from. Don't get me wrong. It's a, a perfectly serviceable, fun song. It would have been fun to see in the film. But as Drew got Guy Ritchie, or excuse me, uh, Drew got Alan Menken to, to to reveal in your interview that Guy Ritchie wasn't really familiar with the Broadway show.
0: Yeah, didn't have a lot of interest in the Broadway show. It sounded like he didn't even know about it or what songs were a part of it. Yeah. So. Kind
1: of interesting. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's sort of the, here was this brand new song. Now, you know, I haven't seen the show, Don't Care How It Fits In, that sort of thing. And so this is how we ended up with our fourth Jasmine song, which tried to be of the moment, you kind of know, tried to be of this era, which talking about how the song was influenced by me the Me Too movement. And it just occurred to me that this has got to be a pretty epic, chunk of mansplaining uh that i'm doing here so i should probably shut up now drew what's going on with 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 your wonderful uh, mission impossible podcast light the fuse
0: we are starting our, our three part series with paul hirsch mm-hmm. the great paul hirsch so you have to listen to that jim a lot of stories about star wars and the two mission impossible movies he edited And we even get him to talk about John Hughes a little bit. So it's pretty great. It's a pretty great chat. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I I strongly suggest you
1: tune into that. I cannot wait. Okay. Meanwhile, my side of the fence, well, we got the, uh, well, you already mentioned Lentesta. So uh, Disney is with Lentesta. In fact, I I would imagine the next time we chat, we're going to be doing quite a bit of talking about Galaxy's Edge. Same thing with, with Dan Z and looking at Lucasfilm. I would imagine lots of discussion about Black Spire Outpost. We also have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, which will have absolutely no Star Wars info. And on the other hand, the uh, the Disney merch podcast I do with uh, Michelle Valladolid. I want that. Boy, that's probably going to talk a lot about the merch. And then, of course, we have Marvelous Disney. If you get head over to iTunes... And rate and recommend not only this show but the light diffuse. The if you get out over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be very helpful. Uh, thanks for listening, folks, and we will be back soon. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.